0: Hello, welcome to Science Book Shambles, an extra book shambles that we're now doing on a weekly basis with science authors and also scientists, in addition to the usual weekly episode of Book Shambles. You can hear an extended version of this interview by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash book shambles. I know I always say forward slash, but that's because I'm 51 years old.
1: Here's the conversation. Welcome to Science Book Shambles, producer Trent here, as Robin said at the start. If you can support us on Patreon, that is greatly appreciated as another lockdown arrives here in the UK. Patreon really is uh, the only way we can keep Cosmic Shambles Network going and putting out all the podcasts and documentaries and live streams and everything else that we do and and making most of that stuff available for free for everyone. We, uh, like everyone else in this industry, we've had hundreds of of live shows uh, cancelled this year, which means uh, no income. So Patreon really is our lifeblood for the foreseeable. And on that, uh, talking about the second lockdown, a lot of people have asked us how that will affect the 24-hour edition of Nine Lessons that is happening on December 12. Uh, the short answer is we will still definitely be doing a 24-hour Nine Lessons on the 12th of December one way or another we're working ridiculously hard here at shambles hq trying to work out what we can and can't do but one way or another it will be happening and robin and helen and josie and brian and chris hadfield and jocelyn Bellburnell and sophie ellis begster and everyone else it's all still happening watch the space uh on twitter at cosmic shambles and we'll keep you up to date with everything i sign up to our mailing list now On this episode of Science Book Shambles, Robin is chatting to psychologist Stuart Ritchie about his new book. So here's the episode. Hope you enjoy.
0: Now the next person uh, that I'm talking to, so I think I first met at the Edinburgh Skeptics. I might be wrong, and since mm-hmm. then I've done various. Uh, did I, was it Edinburgh Skeptics? Yeah? It was. It was. Yeah, probably one of the festival events that they they did um, that we both and then one of these dingy uh, underground uh, uh, pubs in Edinburgh. Yeah, it was a dingy underground pub, very nice dingy underground pub, <laughs> and uh, and then we did a, another couple of panels, and then of course we did uh, a, a monkey cage up in Edinburgh as well. Um, I've got to say. Um, that your new book, Science Frictions. I've I've been going through a period of time where I've lost trust for almost everyone, both yeah. uh, you know, personally and publicly. So this really, uh, it's it's a, it was. <laughs> I have to admit, I was tremendously depressed at times reading this because, as as you and you do underline this in the book, this is. We're looking at something which aims to be objective. Science, we we hope, is filled with it. But as also we do know, there are egos there. There are uh, grant applications. There are TED Talks that people want to make. And this book looks at the problems of uh some scientific research the untrustworthiness of certain yeah. areas of scientific research and I know that a lot of people who've read it have said it, it you know it's, it's a very important book to write but it's a it's a difficult I mean let's start off with with your personal I mean again of course I now have no trust for you so anything you say it's an interesting <laughs> book because as I read the book I'm still there thinking well why now do I trust Stuart I've met him a couple yeah. of times in a dingy underground pub you know <laughs> so it's it's it is an interesting book in terms of making even if you're reasonably sceptical, yeah. you suddenly look at your bookshelf and you go, "Well, yeah. that Stephen Jay Gould book now, I'm not entirely sure that remains relevant." Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, you shouldn't trust uh, or, or or
2: take uh, and uh, take my word for it. Certainly, um, the whole book is trying to say that um, even the scientific journals that we rely on to to give us the information. Um, to give us the the accurate summary of what's been done in in in, in research, the the scientific record are um, tainted by our kind of own human foibles, our own human biases, um, and sometimes like deliberate actual fraud that people are are you know are, it's not just a it's not just a kind of unconscious human problem. It's it's actual deliberate fraud, and that gets through into our scientific record a lot more often than we'd like to think. And um, yeah, I, I certainly found it um, rather depressing while I was writing it, although I think towards the end, uh, it makes there, there are some optimistic changes that we could make. But certainly you, you, you think to yourself, my God, how do we get into this situation where, you know, the, the, the institution, as you said, that we rely on to be most objective and that has the potential to be most objective
0: um, is, is, is so biased. Well, let's start off with, you know, the, the story kind of begins to some extent 10 years ago. With a piece of research that that you and a few others saw, and and you were sceptical of the results. So, can you tell us a little bit? It's, it's Daryl Bem's research, wasn't That's it? Right. Which, which yeah. kind of is, is almost the starting point. Yeah, it, it was a starting point for me, and it was it was in, it was among the things that started off what we
2: now call the replication crisis, which you know we could talk about a bit. So, he um, Daryl Bem, who's a professor at Cornell University, so you know very very uh, well respected social psychologist. Um, published this paper in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which is a really prestigious place to get your research published if you're a psychologist. It's a you know very mainstream journal, and it was about psychic powers. It was about parapsychology. It was about how um, the undergraduates that he brought into his lab uh, to to do experiments could actually predict the future, kind of using this um, un- unconscious psychic powers that they had. So there's various different experiments that he that he did. I think there were nine experiments in the paper, um, but the, the the one that we were the one that we uh, were most kind of interested in because it had a really big effect. like it was a, it was a you know almost like a noticeable effect. Um, he uh, uh, got people in showed them a list of words on the screen, one at a time, uh, just just random, just random words. Uh, then they had to do a memory test, so they just had to remember as many of those words as they could, just type them into the computer. And then, after the memory test, they were shown words again. Uh, half of the words uh, that they had that they had previously seen. The computer randomly selected half of them, showed them again, and then that's the end of the experiment. And what he showed in this experiment, or claimed in the in the in the paper, had happened was that the words that they were about to see, so the words that they they saw a second time, were uh, were were remembered better. So that is, um, like I say in the book, you, it's like you study for an exam, and then you sit the exam, and then afterwards you go home and you just read the textbook again, and that somehow. That extra second reading somehow winds its way back in time to help you uh, uh, the, help you do, get a better uh, exam result, which is kind of mind blowing uh, when you think about it. And that is, you know, that's a published part of the of literature that that, that experiment, and um, along with several other ones, including um, some even more bizarre ones about being able to sense porn being uh, shown to you in the future and 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 things like that.
0: Well, it, has, it does. It feels, you know, that those people who are big fans of the work of Philip K. Dick or have just finished reading a book about the block universe. You know, right, th- right. these kind of things immediately play <laughs> yeah. into all yeah. manner of different ideas, not merely of the biology of the brain, but of the nature of the physics of time. And, yeah, yeah, that's
2: but, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so if it was true, it would really change the way we think about time and, and, and causality and, uh, and, and everything. If this was if this was true and um, because we would be able to, uh, uh, you know, perceive not not necessarily consciously perceive but but act on information that was that was in the future so um we uh the that being uh, Richard Wiseman and uh, Chris French and uh, any sort so, uh, my psychologist colleagues thought this was somewhat uh, uh, odd and so we thought we'd run a replication study of it. We ran exactly the same experiment. Uh, I ran it in Edinburgh, um, Richard in Hertfordshire and uh, um, uh, Chris at Goldsmiths um, and we ran the same experiment with exactly the same number of people, exactly the same uh, setup on the computer and so on and we found nothing. We found no psychic parapsychological effect at all. The people remembered the words that they were about to see just as well as the ones they, had, they, they, were, not, they were not about to see. So there was no kind of backward time thing. And, and then what happened was the thing that really made me kind of wonder about science, which was we, uh, we uh, submitted that study to the same journal that Bem had, had, had published his paper in, Um, and we immediately received a response from the journal you know obviously the editor gets to decide which which research um, you know goes off for peer review and the editor told us we're not sending your paper for peer review um, and we would never send your paper for peer review because we do not ever publish replication studies now that's whether they're positive or negative we just we just have a blanket policy that we never accept any replication studies um and you know eventually we got the paper published somewhere else but but what this showed us was that um, the, the setup of science is is not what we would expect, right? You would expect that the journal would be interested in just um, just what's 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 true, um, uh, rather than what's exciting and what's flashy and what's um, you know going to make a big splash. And it did make a big splash. This paper was all over the you know the original paper was all over the news. Uh, Daryl Ben went on Stephen Colbert and like there was he like, was a huge thing about it. Um, but of course, when the replication came out. We were told that, you know, that wasn't interesting. And this is something which happens across all science, right? It's not just stuff that's as, you know, as, as outrageous as, you know, causality. We've got causality completely backwards. It happens to some extent across, across all the journals who are more interested in publishing large, you know, scale, exciting, positive uh, findings and not, well, you know, maybe you know, maybe that isn't true. Maybe here, here's a study that, that maybe takes us back to where we were before that paper came out.
0: How I mean, how much did that after they 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 rejected uh, putting your paper to peer review? Once this whole story had played out, how much do you think that attitude changed? Even just in that publication, because that's the in, that's the first shocking thing in this book, and that's only about page ten or so. It's probably not even that, which is the refusal to publish something that refutes what could otherwise be a very major discovery, mm. and it also. Because of the simplicity of the experiment, I can understand in physics sometimes where you go. Do you know what? There's a lot of things when you're powering up a, a collider. There's a lot of things we have to take into account. Your experiment and and daryl Bem's original experiment is yeah. a very environment to replicate. Yeah, uh, yeah.
2: It was it was it was extremely extremely uh, uh, straightforward to run, and that was one of the. And, and you know, you've got to give daryl Bem credit actually, because he he put all his uh um you know materials and computer program and stuff online for anyone to replicate so that's not that's not a um you know a criticism of of, of him because he was actually very interested in replications it's a criticism of the the scientific system the journal system and um, and you know you, you you asked about how that's changed well that specific journal i'm very pleased to say now that's that's the journal of personality and social psychology now on their website I, I think this was you know in the last maybe three years or something They've now got a thing that says we encourage you to submit replication studies." And I think that is um feels like a personal victory for for one for one for one for one thing, but also it it's a um it's a it's an indication that things are changing to some extent. Now, of course, that's just one journal. and you know there are some journals, lots of other journals that are kind of coming on board with that and changing the way they uh, um you know have their policies set out on their websites. but um, yeah, it's a, it's a, um, that has now changed so that, that people are now much more interested in replication studies. But I think it's, it's because of that paper and it's because of the, you know, the reaction that that paper had, along with a few other things that happened around about that time, that's 2011, 2012, that really made people think, oh, God, our, our, the system would be working in, you know, um, in psychology, it, it's really not working, and then people realize well actually these lessons don't just apply to psychology they apply to you know science more generally and that's you know the book the book uh, goes goes beyond just just my own just my own field.
0: Well, this is, I mean, in one way, it would kind of be, it wouldn't be that disturbing. It would be annoying. At one point, I noticed I wrote in the margin of the book, sometimes I think psychology appears to be the most fraudulent branch of science that exists. Uh, and it would be great to then just go, oh, well, with these kind of experiments about telepathy and, and some form of prescience, that's fine. But of course, the book then that doesn't stop there. And there are things which go beyond giving people the kind of the nice jolt that they think they might be telepathic into things that may well actually kill people or certainly be very down. And I want to talk a little bit about, I think, is it Paolo uh, Maccherini? Maccherini, uh, yeah. 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 Um, the, the, can you tell us a little this involved um trachea implants
2: so yeah he was a, a, a surgeon um at the karolinska institute and that's a very prestigious in, you know institution in uh, you know university and university hospital in stockholm in sweden and um, it's the place that they decide the nobel prize so you get your call from stockholm when you win the nobel prize in in, in medicine or physiology and um, and it's uh uh they had a you know petition of professors from that university who wanted to employ this up and coming star surgeon Paolo Macchiarini, um, and he was doing um, windpipe transplants. Uh, and you know the big thing in transplant medicine, the big problem is is immune rejection, right? You you give someone a transplant of someone else's organ, and it's rejected by their immune system. Uh, uh, that happens with you know skin grafts or a- any kind of transplant. And he appeared to have found the answer to that transplant rejection problem he appeared to have discovered that if you seeded uh, uh, the 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 uh, the in this case the windpipe if you seeded it with stem cells from the from the person that was going to receive it it kind of um it, it could kind of um, build up a, um, a kind of um, uh, almost like it would trick the immune system into thinking this is their own this is their own uh, uh, windpipe um, and he first did that with you know a, a uh, a windpipe from a from a dead donor, and then he 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 did it with an artificial uh, uh, windpipe, and that was the real you know the real real breakthrough was he was able to um, uh, give these um, these these artificial windpipes uh, seeded with stem cells that would then that would then uh, uh, not be rejected. And there were you know big papers in The Lancet, so the top you know one of the world's top medical journals, big papers published in there, um, big papers uh, in um, uh, in kind of biomaterials research and, and so on, um, saying that these were really successful experiments and that he was really you know pushing the boundaries of of, of medicine. Um, And then it turned out that actually the patients were uh, were dying and the patients were uh, he he was writing their, you know, about their medical records in the in the in the papers as if these were really successful experiments. But the doctors that were actually dealing with the patients were saying, wait a minute. This this patient's in a terrible state. The, the 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 transplant has not worked. This this patient has you know has has severe breathing problems, has severe you know uh, medical issues, and it just the, you know their their condition does not relate at all to what's been written up in these you know very prestigious scientific uh, publications.
0: Well, I think, and at one point you actually say that it was mentioned in a in a, a paper that there had been some complications, and in fact the patient had died seven weeks before that paper was. So, which, I, yeah. I I personally considered death. To be more than a minor complication, I, I, th- I think that's that's one of the biggest complications yeah. for the continuation it's, of activity. Yeah,
2: for, for medical for medical research. Yeah, yeah, it's um it's unbelievable. And this was and this was all written you know written up in these journals, and then you know as if that wasn't bad enough, and and you know he had done these operations in uh, in, in Sweden in Russia, uh, he had a kind of second base of operations in Russia, and he um, did some in the U.S. as well, um, uh, and as if that wasn't bad enough, when this was pointed out. The, the 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 university got an investigation done. They got an, an independent academic to come in and say, you know, look at his papers, look at the medical records, check that this all makes sense and adds up. Um, and, you know, that independent academic said, no, it doesn't. I think this is serious scientific misconduct going on here. And, you know, it's led to the deaths of people. The university said, oh, actually, no, sorry, we've done our own investigation and we don't think that this is misconduct at all. The journal, the scientific journal, The Lancet, wrote a kind of crowing editorial that said, Paolo Macchiarini has been accused of misconduct, but in fact, we've now discovered that he hasn't committed any misconduct at all. And it looked as if he had got away with it. Um, and it was only after uh, a couple of weird things happened. So the first thing that happened was he um, there was a, an article published in uh, Vanity Fair magazine about him, um, about how he had had this kind of romantic affair with a, a, a news producer at NBC, I think, and he had been telling her all these kind of weird like con man style things like um, oh i'm actually the pope's personal doctor and um we're going to get married you, you know you and i the pope's going to officiate the wedding uh, the obamas are coming elton john's going to do the uh, do the, the the music like he told her all these bizarre things and so that made people think oh maybe this guy is slightly um you know uh, untrustworthy and then a documentary came out where they had you know, they had gone and interviewed the families of the of the people who had died after the operations and talked to some of the people who were still alive but in a terrible state and, you know, you couldn't deny after that point that something seriously wrong had happened here and the university eventually, you know, got another investigation done and, and eventually um, you know, admitted that it was scientific misconduct, fired him. There were loads of repercussions. Heads started to roll at the top of the university. Um, but this went on for a long time and it was covered up, you know, for, by by the scientific establishment for quite a long time. And that really, you know, you're saying at the start that this kind of, this stuff sort of shakes your faith in science. My God, this really, this story really made me think, you know, uh, you know to what extent can I trust, can I trust these, you know, big, venerable, august scientific institutions like the Lancet, like the Karolinska Institute, if it's actually you know if 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 it's not just that that someone is you know committing fraud and they you know
0: that's that's unfortunate enough but it's the fact that they covered it up here are the, the times that the, the, this worries me it, well, on many different fronts, but but one of them is, you know, having a lot of conversations. Yesterday was another busy day with con- conspiracy theorists. And, they, you know, yeah. they'll show you all these different kind of graphs and diagrams to show you the level of evil of, of Bill Gates. Unfortunately, yeah. it it you know, one of the dangers you discover if you do become a billionaire, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Well, I, OK, <laughs> fair. No, but one of the dangers seems to be that if at any point you show any form of uh, actual altruism, that's far more dangerous than merely being uh, greedy and utterly duplicitous. You know, so so you end up with this. And now the problem is that when you read a book like this, it is it will also because people will cherry pick the information. Now, that that's the bit that worries me is how how does someone like me who is not a scientist who doesn't have the, uh, you know, how am I able to? offer people who have bought into what I do personally believe are very often conspiracy theories and are ill-founded you know, the more we know about how, and, and that becomes a, a, an enormous problem, doesn't it? We know this from journalism as well. We know this from politics. You know it from genetics as well, which is, mm-hmm. you know, there will be, you know, Robert Plowman or whatever will write a book with many different ideas in it, but there will be one idea that is removed yeah. and then placed in the in the newspaper column and placed in, you know, an education advisor's hands and all of those different things. How do we battle it when we're not actually within science itself?
2: Yeah, it's really it's really tricky, and I have had uh, since the book came out lots of very strange emails from people with those kind of diagrams that you're talking about about Bill Gates and uh, uh, and 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 about climate science and about vaccines and uh, my goodness, uh, it really does when you when you publish something like this, <laughs> your email becomes you know uh, uh, an interesting place for a few a uh, few months. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think. You know, the argument I I would make is the fact that there are people out there who do, you know, um, uh, uh, espouse conspiracy theories and who uh, are anti-science, you know, uh, people like, you know, the the classic creationist or anti-vaxxer or whatever. um, It just means that scientists have to raise their standards. We as scientists have to have to stop doing the stuff I'm talking about in the book, like hyping up our research in the in the press uh um you know what i talk about uh, is you know scientists writing press releases themselves which which they often do and um, which then don't stand up and get and get uh, you know debunked and, and and attacked and so on um, and just putting stuff out into the world that's not fully backed up by the data, but but you know you're a scientist saying it is is such a terrible idea. And um, scientists have to stop you know writing up papers in ways that make it sound like it's the biggest breakthrough ever, when in fact it's just an incremental uh, little little uh, step on the way. Scientists have to stop um, being kind of reticent to share their data and be open and transparent, because I think all of that stuff feeds into the conspiracy theories. I think if if scientists um if scientists say Oh, no, you know, our research is completely definitive. And, um, you know, so there's an example I gave at the end of the book. The Trump administration has attacked scientists in in various ways. But one of the ways that it did so was by um, was by uh, forcing at one point there was there was discussion. This never actually happened, but there was discussion that um, they would would force all publications that were funded by one of the environmental protection uh, 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 agencies to say this is preliminary research, preliminary research. And of course the reason that they did that was that they would they wanted people to go ah well you know these scientists it's all just preliminary i can just believe whatever i want scientists some scientists responded to that by saying no no our research is final uh, every every paper that's published is you know a definitive statement and so on i think that's a really bad idea because i think that's not how science works and i think the way that we push back against conspiracy theories anti science people you know politics uh, people politicians with an anti science agenda is is by being 100% open and transparent about the limitations of what we're doing. I think a lot of the problem is that people have this idealized view of science. Um, uh, and so whenever they discover that there's one slight problem with it, they think, oh, well, the whole thing can just just fall to bits. Um, you saw that in the climate gate situation where there were a few weird emails from um, from climate scientists uh, that came out and everyone thought, oh, well, oh, my God, there must be a huge conspiracy to to make up the results of, on, on on climate change. Um, when, in fact, it was just it was scientists doing messy science and being a little bit biased here and there and so on. So it, kind of in an ironic way, the stuff that I'm talking about, you know, about biases and so on are are, are really bad, but they're a part of the, the inherent process of science and they're a part of the messy reality of science. And I think if we keep uh, I mean, one of the big problems I'm talking about is that scientists want to... Uh, uh uh give this image to the world of this amazing pristine process where we we thought of all these things beforehand and then we just went to the data and there they were uh, um you know we've come up with this amazing hypothesis and sure enough it's been shown to be correct and all the kind of warts and all stuff about you know results that don't quite make sense or are a bit ambiguous or don't quite follow the story get kind of get kind of um uh, uh you know lost in 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 that in that um lovely shiny image and I think if we start showing a bit of the warts and all stuff, we start saying, "Look, we predicted this bit didn't happen. This data doesn't make sense to us. Here, look, the data is online. You can have a look yourself." I think if we did that, that would be the best antidote to you know conspiracy theories who uh, conspiracy theorists who think that scientists are hiding stuff. Um, if we just all became much more transparent.
0: Yeah, I think I, I I agree with and I've heard other people say exactly what you've just said, and I agree. But I also think that in the end, what we're we're caught with is the fact that the way that the mass media works, the way that it works as uh, as show business basically, mm. means that transparency will merely mean that columnist goes brilliant. I found another mistake they've made. I've got so in in another way, it's almost like do we have to just? I mean, do those things you said. But forget about how that works in terms of the way that's used by mass media, because mass media generally is uh, something which has, I'm afraid, I think, even, you know, scant interest in, in the truth. I mean, that, that's what I found over time. It's always disappointing. You know, the more I work with scientists, I went, oh, yeah, it turns out no one's reasonable. That reason yeah, doesn't yeah. Human beings aren't reasonable. You know, and in your book, I think, you know, a lot of what comes across in a lot of the chapters is our ego is something which is you know th- there's a point where I think you know th- that desire for a TED talk may well mm. trump your desire uh for 100 percent accuracy if it's going to yeah. go over 18 minutes
2: yeah <laughs> absolutely uh, the, I, I think you know I have actually had similar feelings myself of, of like maybe I just maybe maybe I'll just never you know in, in the past I've written press releases for papers that have come out uh, and, and put it out. No, it's, you're encouraged by your university. It's really good to get attention and you can show your uh, your department that you're getting, uh, you know, there's an article in the Guardian about your paper or there's an article in the Times, whatever it is. Um, uh, you know, I had this number of clicks on my alt metric, which is this thing they attach to scientific papers that show you the number of links to it from other websites and so on. You can look at your alt metrics all day long and the number of tweets about it and so on. Um, I, I actually have kind of just, Change the way you know. Change the way I think about it. I, I can't ever see myself being interested in writing a press release again about a paper. Um, just because the number of just because of the the number of ways that things are misinterpreted, and uh, you cannot possibly, as you say, you cannot possibly um, uh, uh, fully explain everything in, in 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 a press release, whether it's a press release or a TED talk. You can't possibly fully explain all the caveats, and there always are caveats um, to to any research. And the problem is, of course, that the research that's that people are most interested in. In the, in the media, is stuff that impinges to some degree on the culture war, right? Um, is stuff about, are there differences between men and women? Or, you know, is this something, is it nature or nurture? Um, is is it, uh, you know, uh, whatever, you know, anything that, that relates to politics in any way. Um, these days, of course, anything that relates to coronavirus as well, although that's a kind of Hopefully, a temporary situation that that's you know everyone's particularly interested in that. Although I wouldn't say scientists have covered themselves in glory uh, in the COVID uh, situation either. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, I'm I, I'm so depressed about the way that this is this is taken up. But but you know the important point I, I wanted to make in the book was this is not just it's not just the fault of 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 the media and journalists and so on. Although you know they can get things terribly wrong. It's the fault of scientists largely too, and not just writing press releases, but also writing, you know, popular books that are full of, again, not necessarily lies or made-up stuff, or even stuff that's, that's um, that's fundamentally wrong, but just stuff that's that's uh, oversimplified, or exaggerated, or catastrophized in some way. One of the examples I give is that book Why We Sleep, uh, which is a huge bestseller, and I see it in every single uh, bookshop uh, I walk past. Um, Remember when we used to go to airports? I remember airports. Uh, you used to see it in all the airport bookshops. Um, it was everywhere, and um, I'm sure that the fundamental message of that book is true. Sleeping is important. Sleeping is really, you know, having more sleep is good, and uh, and 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 associated with lots of healthy things. But if you look into the actual way that it's described in the in the in the in the book, it's it's exaggerated beyond the evidence. There are kind of correlation causation errors in there where you know correlational studies are interpreted as if they were experiments um, there are uh, there are sort of omissions of important data that, that kind of go against the, the picture a little bit and it's part of what I was talking about you know a moment ago about making it everything look much more simple and, and easy to understand and that's part of the media landscape I guess is you want you want there to be a, a strong you know easy to understand message and um, and I just think to myself you know we should be we should know better scientists should know better this is written by a professor you know uh, uh, at at um, one of the university of california universities i think i can't remember which one um you know th- this is a this is a, a really a really um this is something we should be doing better we are scientists we're supposed to be the ones that are that are as good as you know a, as objective as it's possible to be um but that's just not happening and um yeah
0: i don't know i don't really have an answer i just See, I, I just, think yeah that i mean me that, that's the i suppose what i find myself is that i'm i'm increasingly reading books about uh myth and, uh, you know, kind of books of a more forte and Bentham and re- returning to books about witchcraft and demonology. And I think I'm almost more content with that because <laughs> there is a problem where th- there's a bit of me which says, do you know what? Science should just be for scientists if you see a bit which is and that that's that worries me because it's not an idea that i like uh but it is an idea that i go the more that i hear where you go well do you know what? that's a shortcut and that's kind of removed one of the other papers which kind of all of that thing go well at least if i read something that is starting from a a point of utter nonsense (laughs) i know it remains utter nonsense so let me just read about all of these different you know the angry norse sky gods and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, the, your book may well be the reason that I end up going back to Human Sacrifice. Um, <laughs> by the way, if wow. you want to cheer yourself up after reading Science Frictions, then read Thomas Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Um, uh, <laughs> but it is. No, I think it's a very good. But, you know, th- that's the thing is it, it it it's disturbing. And that's very often a good thing. Oh. Uh, I, I, my final question, really, I suppose, is that how do we because of course sometimes it is very important as you also mentioned in this book there are certain medical practices which are not nearly as weighted on evidence as we might imagine and these may well be practices that you know will affect us or affect people that we know when they're being treated um how do we educate ourselves when we can find out that something like the lancet may well you know, have absent. And, and a lot of these what previously people would have thought as, as rigorous journals and and perhaps the most trustworthy sources, nevertheless, they also very often have feet of clay.
2: Yeah, I think I think um one of the things that's underrated, uh, I, I think is is, is has been kind of now described as post publication peer review. Like normally peer review happens, you know, in in secret. At the journal, the journal organises it, sends the paper out to people. They get their reviews back, and so on. And you go through the whole process of peer review. But I think what's been increasingly happening these days, and and particularly by the way, with um, with kind of COVID nineteen related papers, because everyone's talking about it all the time, um, is post publication peer review. So the paper gets discussed on Twitter. The paper gets discussed um, on websites like um, like like PubPeer. There are organisations like the uh, the Science Media Centre who go out and ask sci- other scientists what they think. And I think the only way we can combat, you know, the 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 failings of 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 the peer review system, as members of the public who who don't have any like you know access to 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 the journals or or, or uh, and so on, and who see and who see the. The scientific claims being propagated in the media and so on i think the way we do that is just by encouraging other scientists to talk about it right encouraging other scientists to be critical one of the best things about science is that it's a constant process of skepticism and criticism and and, and so on and that i think is being lost somewhat when as i said you know, the first the, the the main part of the criticism happens behind closed doors so you never see it um and also scientists are kind of really reluctant to share their data and so on but i think asking other scientists so if you look on twitter search for the paper have a look and see what people are saying you will often find scientists spending their spare time uh writing up uh you know threads that critique a paper um comments in the media the best media articles will be the ones that go and get an independent scientist to comment on a a bit of research so when something that's new that appears um you know you can often find people talking about it and and you'll get a you know sometimes you'll get a rather uneducated perspective from like random anonymous conspiracy trolls, but also sometimes you'll get a good perspective from other scientists. So I think that's the advice I would give is, is don't um, take the, the words of the paper for it. Go out and go out and uh, and see what other people are saying. Um, and you know, in really severe cases, there are websites like Pubpeer where people can kind of anonymously comment and say, hmm, I think this data looks a bit suspicious here or this picture looks a bit photoshopped and so on, which is one of the kind of you know issues with fraud that I talk about in the book. Um, uh, that's one thing, but I think we can also all put pressure on um, on on media to stop hyping up articles, and put pressure on scientists to stop um, writing press releases that hype up their, their their research. And as scientists, we can put pressure on universities and funders and so on. I mean. The funders are, are 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 you know they don't want to be caught with you know uh, funding research that's 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 fraudulent or doesn't replicate or is dodgy in any way or causes harm to people if it's a you know a medical treatment that doesn't work, so I think we can all put pressure on them to to um. Be more transparent. Like I was saying earlier on, um, f- you know, force researchers to put their data online wherever possible, to share their methods, to share their uh, their 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 um, all of the the information they have about their study, rather than keeping it all to themselves, which is part of the you know the the, the problem. And to um and to be fully open before they even start the experiment, to register their study and say, look we are going to do this, and only this with the data. We're not just going to dig around and dredge through the data set until we find anything, which is what you know a huge amount of science uh, looks like at the moment. Um so I think the the kind of advice that I give at the end of the book, um, you, you know um about how we could we can change science would get us into a better position. But I think we the, the fundamental thing is that we need to view science in a different way. It's not the case that one single paper comes out and it's like the scientist in a white lab coat coming in with a sheaf of papers saying, Eureka, you know, that's not how it works. Every paper is kind of an incremental thing. It has its own... Uh, strengths uh, but its own limitations too and we can't overinterpret any individual bit of research or any individual paper uh, that comes out um, and and make a massive massive deal of it unfortunately the system that scientists work in the university system the academic system and you know as you said the media system forces scientists to make a massive deal of every individual bit of research they do Um, but we we need to we need to get away from that science is an incremental bricks in the wall thing uh, not this massive flashy revelation with every single paper
0: Thanks very much, Stuart. So Science Frictions is out now. Uh, as I said, it's a disturbing book It's well. I'm very glad to hear that thing about why we sleep because uh, I really had presumed that I'd lost at least 10 years of my life due to insomnia and it might be less than that. Um, Stuart Rich's Science Fictions is out now. It's published by Bodleyhead. Uh, thanks very much, Stuart.
1: Thanks. Thanks very much for listening, rate like review five stars all the things that you can do with podcasts uh, that really help us out and nothing helps us out more than your support on patreon so you can go to cosmicshambles.com and find all the links to pledge there hope you enjoyed this episode we will be back next week with some more science book shambles plus normal science shambles and book shambles as well stay safe look after each other take care see you soon
0: this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network yeah.